Well, it's really a joy to be with you this morning, and it's a joy to be with you, all of those of you who are out there. I, I want to greet you too. Um, this morning, I want to look at this amazing encounter between the angel and the peasant girl especially his salutation and her response. This encounter prepared the entry of our Lord into our world, into our humanity, and it changed the course of human existence. But it's not just Christmas nostalgia. This has a lot, this encounter has a lot to speak to us about our relationship with God today. Father, I ask that you will give me clarity as I speak and that you will, your Holy Spirit will speak to each person in the way that they need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So, but we read two stories about Gabriel this morning, right? Uh, very well read, uh, I must add. Um, and that's because these two stories are meant to be read together. They, there's a lot that is comparing in them, and I think it's, it's quite striking. But So let's back up a bit and look at the encounter between Gabriel and the elderly priest, which will prepare us for the encounter between Gabriel and the young girl. So, in the first story, which is actually the very first story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is telling us a very Jewish story. It's a story of longing and fulfillment. It feels like an Old Testament story, full of echoes of the Hebrew scriptures, their, their stories, the the pious yet childless couple praying and waiting an entire lifetime for God's blessing of a child. For his, also, they were waiting for his visitation to his people after centuries of oppression by their enemies and silence of the prophets. So the announce, announcement of a prophet was very important. A series of factors come together to prepare an ideal encounter between heaven and earth. So, one day, Zechariah, the pious priest from the Judean hill country, the ideal representative of the faithful remnant of the Jewish people, is chosen by lot and has his once-in-a-lifetime chance to burn the incense. So this is an ideal moment in his life. It comes one time. And he goes, he is in the temple in Jerusalem, the ideal place for heaven and earth to meet. The people praying outside represent the faithful remnant praying and longing 
for God's visitation. So they create ideal conditions. They're outside praying. Just as Zechariah is in the sanctuary and beginning to burn the incense, the incense is the symbol of prayer rising to God, the angel Gabriel appears to him. Of course, Zechariah is frightened. This angel comes from the very presence of God, and he was well known from the book of Daniel as the angel announcing the last times. He would be, I would be scared too. Gabriel speaks, okay, this, um, here Gabriel brings a message of good news the answer to Zachariah's lifelong prayer. This miracle, son, will be the cause of great rejoicing. Rejoice, you have received the answer to your prayers. You've received a special grace. Not only the miracle child will be an answer to prayer to the pious couple, but he is an answer to prayer of the whole community and the whole community will rejoice. He will be called the prophet of the Most High. Zechariah must have thought of God's promise to Abraham, who also was old and with a, an elderly, sterile wife, well past her childbearing age, because his question is so similar to Abraham's question. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. However, where God praised the faith of Abraham, Gabriel judges the doubt of Zechariah. But the punishment he gives is not so bad because it's just that he will not be able to speak until the promise is fulfilled. So the factors were ideal, but the response leaves to be desired. In the second story of an even more momentous promise, paradoxically, all these ideal factors melt away. But the response of the young girl will thrill God's heart. The same angel returns six months later, but this time he takes a surprising turn away from the center to the margins. Whereas Luke takes pains to enumerate the qualities of Zachariah and Elizabeth, their esteemed genealogy, their blameless reputation, he tells us nothing either of Mary's genealogy or her reputation. We do find out later that she's related to Elizabeth. We know she's a virgin and engaged to Joseph, a descendant of King David. Scholars tell us that young women in the first century were usually engaged to be married between the ages of 12 and 15 so barely older than Juliet, who read to us this morning. 
so by our standards, Mary was very young. In subsequent centuries, people became uh, ill at ease with this lack of information about Mary. So they wanted to fill the gap and legends arose. So we have legends about Mary's parents, legends about her conception, her childhood, her education, etc., etc. But all this information is conspicuous by its absence in Luke's account. Luke very intentionally, I believe, omits this information because his point is that in the New Covenant, these things don't matter. What matters in Mary's story resides not in her, but in how she responds to God. Not what she brings to the table, but what she does. Not only does Gabriel now go to an unknown girl, he goes to a very lackluster place. After the exile, 500 years before, the northern provinces were resettled by a mixture of Jewish tribes returning from foreign lands, dispersed amongst the Gentiles who had taken their place. The tribes were no longer on their ancestral lands and living alongside populations of Gentiles. Thus, we have Matthew's reference to Galilee of the Gentiles. Peter was recognized by his northern accent, probably not admiringly. So I want you to think for a moment of an accent that you don't particularly like. As to Mary's hometown, Nathaniel in John's Gospel asked, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Why does the angel leave the temple, the heart and the control center of the capital and the nation, to move to the margins, to a backwater village in the periphery? Gabriel came to Zechariah at the height of his priestly career, the one time he was chosen by lot to enter the holy place to burn the incense, a setting for an ideal religious experience. When Gabriel comes to Mary, he leaves the majestic architecture, the ritual, the ancient religious ceremony, to come to a common girl in an obscure village in a despised region and into her ordinary life. Maybe she was scrubbing pots or cleaning the chicken coop. We don't know. She was certainly not dressed for the occasion. What we know is how the angel addresses her. Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. Okay, you can go to first slide. So uh, forgive the Greek, but we need it. Okay, heri is the first word, rejoice. But it's also the common Greek salutation. So uh, in the first century world, so 
it literally rejoice, the imperative. Most, but not all translations, give the obvious translation for a greeting, greeting. So that's what um, Juliet read this morning. Because it is a greeting. Some translators use the literal meaning rejoice, and I'll explain to you why I use that. For the majority of the audience, Hedy was simply represented a greeting. But for those Greek speakers who knew the Jewish scriptures in the Septuagint, where exactly the word Hedy is used to translate rejoice in the Hebrew prophecies, they hear God's call to them to rejoice because of his visitation. Uh, perfect. This reader might think of several passages, one we read this morning, of hope from the prophets where the people are personified as a young woman. So you see, daughter of Jerusalem, uh, well, it should be daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion. Anyway, uh, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Okay. Um, okay, address like, uh, like these two. Okay, calling her to rejoice. Because he is with her, he is granting her his grace, his favor. Moreover, the call to rejoice is a dominant theme in the stories of the birth of Christ. The birth of John, there was great rejoicing. And then in the birth of Jesus, we know, if we remember the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Slide two. Uh, oh, that, that is it. <laughs> yes. So lo look at these passages from Zechariah and Zephaniah where Israel is personified as the young woman who is called to rejoice because of God's goodness or grace coming to her in victory and forgiveness. Now, Nick, we're back to our original site. Now let's look at the second word, keharitomeni, which I translate here, favored one. The actual word is, I'm sorry, it's a feminine, perfect, passive participle. Okay, so what? which could not so eloquently be translated, woman having received grace or favor. Now, all kinds of translations have been proposed for this, favored woman, highly favored woman, full of grace. One large sector of uh, Christianity has viewed this word as referring to a merit residing in Mary, full of grace, meaning full of merit. But another school that I espouse sees it quite differently. This Mary has received a grace. This tremendous grace is about the action of God towards Mary the enormity of his gift to her. No human could ever deserve the privilege of bearing God's own son, but he granted that, this favor to Mary, and she received it in humility. 
the final part of his salutation, the Lord is with you. There's no difficulty in translation there. This is the promise of God's presence, which I believe is the essence of grace. It is important to note that the writers of the Hebrew scriptures use this expression every time God calls a person for a special mission. So we find this expression, the Lord is with you, when God calls Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Jeremiah, and I think it's particularly interesting when he calls Gideon. Because Gideon was chosen not because of his own greatness, but on the contrary, to show God's greatness in human frailty. Thus, Mary finds herself in a long line of leaders stretching back 2,000 years before her, called to be part of God's plan of salvation. This young girl takes her place among the leaders of her people. Her tremendous value as a model for us is not what she brought to the encounter, but in her humble and total reception of God's grace and mission. If you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not the Blessed Virgin, I'm not even Mother Teresa, you're not excused from the discussion. God offers his grace to you in your real and ordinary life. Luke tells this story in this way to help us identify with this young woman like us and respond like her. The story of Zechariah in the temple tells us that God comes to his people. He has come to his faithful remnant using imagery they can understand. He comes in the midst of the ritual and the prayers of his people resonating with the stories of their past. The prophet born of this promise will prepare the way of the Lord. Zachariah and Elizabeth were highly favored ones. It would have been very difficult for Elizabeth to imagine a greater favor than that, the one she received, a greater grace. And yet, that is exactly what happens in the second story. God moves to the next step of his visitation, an even greater outpouring of his grace. Never yet seen in the history of humanity, he is sending his very own son to be born of a woman. However, paradoxically, Gabriel moves to the periphery of his people where his Messiah will be born in humble circumstances and will be raised alongside the nations. Mary is troubled, but the angel reassures her she has found grace with the Lord. 
the Lord is with her. He then gives her the astounding news that she will become pregnant and that her son will be called Jesus, meaning Savior. And he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. When Mary asks him how, since she is a virgin, what he explains is even more mind-blowing. This will not happen by a man, but exclusively by the Holy Spirit. He finishes with a reference to the miracle that's already happened to Elizabeth. This information alone deserves a sermon or 10 sermons, but I will fast forward to Mary's response. Is grace sometimes dangerous? The grace announced to Zachariah and Elizabeth meant the lifting of decades of shame. The grace announced to Mary threatened to bring shame crashing down on her. Pregnancy outside marriage in the first century risked shaming her entire family not to mention losing a very good fiance. This was a scary proposition. Yet Mary, with the single-mindedness of youth, doesn't meditate on that speculation. She keeps her eye on the ball, namely the promise of God. Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She doesn't ruminate on what could do go wrong, which of course I would have done. She holds fast to his promise. Mary's answer has none of the hesitancy of Zechariah. Mary received God's promise and gave her all in return. Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. The word translated maidservant is actually dule, female slave. It is not used for servants. <laughs> Mary used the strongest language she could find to describe the total giving of herself to the Lord. Somehow, this very young woman caught the vision of God's exciting, dangerous plan for her and for humanity. And she wholeheartedly threw herself in because she rejoiced in a very big God. Being the slave of the Lord is the highest of honors. The humility of Mary's response has nothing to do with low self-esteem. Both start with an awareness of one's own unworthiness. But whereas Mary lifts her eyes and keeps them on God's promise, giving her courage and decisiveness, low self-esteem is fixed on oneself, concentrates on all that will go wrong, and effectively denies God's promises. I recently watched a 
rather poignant episode of the series, The Chosen, an imagined chapter in the life of Mary Magdalene, a different Mary, illustrating the passage from very low self-esteem, we could call it suicidal self-loathing, to joyful humility. Jesus heals Mary from a life of sin and shame. Then we fast forward, we see Mary hosting her very first Sabbath meal. Low self-esteem would have told her that she did not deserve either the service or the communion that comes with it. Humility, having received grace, embraces the joy and the service. In the episode, Mary is awkward and uncertain, but full of joy, I'm sorry, at the privilege of serving as a restored, fully restored Jewish woman. Her guests are also imperfect, but they're more than happy to help her. And then Jesus himself shows up. This little parable illustrates the joy that comes when God's grace penetrates our life and transforms everything, gives us courage to start new, move out of our comfort zone, willingness to take the most humble, lowest of tasks, and a teachable spirit that keeps us young at any age. What are the obstacles that keep us from experiencing this joy at, of embracing God's grace to us with all its consequences in our life in humility and service? We are also called to rejoice as we meditate on Jesus' humble entry into our world. We are also favored ones, invited into God's own family. God entered our humanity in Jesus to pour out his unmerited, unmerited favor on us. So even if you think you don't have Zachariah and Elizabeth's background, their blameless reputation. You don't come from the right family, right social class, right training. You don't have enough achievements. Whatever. God doesn't care. Get over yourself. If we come to him, he is promising his presence with us that is accompanied by a charge, a mission for each of us. Of course, this mission will be different for each person. It may be risky. It may involve pain. 
But if we keep our eyes on God and his promises, we can do amazing things. He can do amazing things with us. It doesn't matter if we think we are basically no one special or if we come from Nazareth. God chose this young girl from an ordinary life to participate with him in opening a new chapter with humanity. What better response can we have to God than that of Mary? Behold the slave of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.